0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards, only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com. Rekonae purangi tenei, nā te reo irirangi te nui. I'm Alison Balance and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. We are marking Sea Week with a special feature from Dunedin science communicator Claire Concannon, She's going to take us in search of what is out there.
1: At first it can appear very featureless. It's basically a blue expanse with nothing on the horizon. So it seems very, very uniform. But it's just exciting to think that at any point something can come up and you might see a fin, or a blow, or a splash of an animal. And I think that makes it really exciting. But the surface of the water is kind of like the floor for us. We don't really think that much, usually, of what's underneath. But for all these creatures, the surface of the water is the ceiling. All their life happens under that, and there's so much going on, and they just occasionally pop up to the surface, just for an insignificant part of their lives. And so that's kind of part where the two worlds interact, which is just at the surface of the water. And that's what we're relying on, is what's, I think, super exciting.
2: In January, I got the chance to go on an offshore survey with the Far Out Ocean Research Collective, including trustee Dr Martha Guetta of the University of Otago, whom you just heard. Far Out is a non-governmental research trust dedicated to finding out more about the marine megafauna and seabirds that live off the coast of New Zealand. Ten people, with provisions for ten days, on a 72-foot yacht called Manawanui, set out from Opua Marina to survey the offshore ocean, 20 to 50 nautical miles off the Northland coast. Dr. Tom Bro, Northland native, far-out trustee, and marine ecologist at Niwa, explains the goal.
3: The ultimate mission is really to start providing a bit more of an understanding of the animals and the habitat that live offshore. So... New Zealand is quite well known for the diversity of marine mammals and seabirds in particular. We know that because of the amount of marine mammals that strand on our shores. New Zealand's a real stranding hotspot. But while we know these animals live here, we don't really know much about their lives, what they do here, how many they are. And without this information, it's really hard to manage them. These populations of animals could be doing really bad and we wouldn't have any idea. There's probably at least 30 cetacean species that live within our waters offshore that we just don't know anything about. You know, obviously that's kind of sad when they you know we know that the ocean is changing a lot and we don't know how these animals are responding to it.
2: Now Northland is the ideal place for this kind of offshore survey. Firstly, it's the most sheltered part of New Zealand, giving a better chance for the conditions needed to safely conduct this research. And secondly, it has a myriad of interesting oceanic habitats, features, and currents.
3: Northland has this quite a unique combination of different types of offshore habitat. And, and by habitat, I mean um, certain geographic features or oceanographic features. So things that are defined by the water and it's the way that it moves. So the combination of yeah, geographic features like canyons or seamounts, plateaus, shelf break kind of anomalies that break up the continental shelf slope. A lot of these different features are favoured by different types of marine megafauna. So there's a, a particularly important feature which is the way that the East Auckland Current, which is an offshoot of the famous Nem- Finding Nemo Current, right, the East Australian Current, it shoots off and crosses the Tasman and then makes sort of a landfall at, at North Cape. When it does, it creates a big eddy just to the east and southeast. Think of it as a giant whirlpool over you know, tens or hundreds of kilometers of distance and that whirlpool can promote upwelling where there's mixing between layers in the water column that makes it very productive and also fronts so that's where there's horizontal boundaries between different types of water that act to aggregate species from phytoplankton the very small animals the grass of the sea through to their grazers and the things that eat them and the things that eat them and then inevitably the the megafauna the grand beasts that we're interested in So yeah, Northland is really special because it has this real diversity in habitat that seems to be reflected in the huge diversity and the megafauna that we're seeing.
2: The team have designed transects that we follow, basically zigzags across interesting features on the seabed floor that might be foraging areas for the marine life that they're interested in, these megafauna. It's a term that includes whales, dolphins, sharks, sunfish, turtles... Basically, any large marine creature. They also identify and document the seabirds that we come across.
0: A ridge of high-pressure life over New Zealand. On Sunday, a front moves over the country.
2: Survey life is super busy. Every hour of daylight on a calm day is precious. So we get in position the night before, and as the sun rises, we set off along our transect line. All day, the team, in pairs rotate between looking out for marine megafauna, counting and noting seabird species, navigating the boat, and making cups of tea and coffee to keep everyone going. At the start, end, and middle of every transect, we pause to take acoustic recordings and to sample for oceanographic data that will help describe the habitat of the area. And at the beginning and end of every day, Farah trustee and captain of Manawanui Jochen Zashmer does a radio check-in with Annette, the volunteer who mans Far North radio from Kaitaya.
4: Far North, Far North,
0: Manawanui,
4: Good morning, Annette. We are very well. We had a calm night on the garden patch. Uh, wind's picked up a little early, but um, it's all good. And we'll be spending the day out here, and we'll check back with you tonight. Over.
2: This kind of visual marine megafauna survey basically means people standing on the bow with binoculars, looking out all the way to the horizon, trying to spot something. And this is part of what makes offshore surveys like this so tricky. We're relying on good spotting conditions,
1: basically, for the visual survey. So we need it to be calm and no swell. And that's harder when you're far offshore. Um, So that's one of the challenges. You don't always get these very good conditions. And and this is important because we're trying to survey a very big area of water. Um, And these animals are scattered around. It's not like they're popping up all over the place. And so we rely on seeing them. You know, when they happen to come up, that we're looking in that general direction, and there's no wave <laughs> obscuring that fin that comes up for a fraction of time.
3: There's always a, a magical moment when somebody yells, blow, or splash, or mammal, or strange seabird, and then everybody runs to the bow, grabs cameras out, you know, things and cups of teas go flying, and you know, everything else is forgotten for a moment until. We discover, I guess the first thing, what is it? Because we can expect anything out here. There's unlimited possibilities, really, of what something might be. So we would break transect and go and and look at whatever this blow or this splash or this strange-shaped fin might be. And everyone's kind of, I guess, percolating with different ideas based on, you know, what they've seen before. Oh, this reminds me of this whale shark fin I saw sticking out of the water or splash like that. I'm sure I saw a Rissos dolphin splash like that once. And so as you get closer and closer, you get these brief little snapshots as this... This creature appears above the water for a brief instant. You photograph it like crazy so you can go back and look at it again. And then as you get closer and closer, the things become a little bit more clear and you see what it is. And very often out here, they are things that sometimes none of us have even seen before. So all the identification books come out and everyone's kind of discussing what, what it might be. And then there's usually some amazing moment where the animal presents itself in a way that makes the identification a lot more clear. And everyone goes, oh my gosh, it's... It's a Rissos dolphin or a anu's big whale or, you know, something really quite special. Yeah, there's a lot of excitement in the air. The scientists, uh, I guess you could say, geeking out. It's like the, the ultimate geeky moment when you see, yes, it's this. And so, yeah, it's just really exciting. And because all of us are well aware just how little data are on some of these animals, like a lot of these, especially some of the lesser-known marine mammals, may only have been seen a dozen times ever. And so just one extra sighting you know, by humans anywhere is a really special moment. And so just sharing that, you know, amongst a bunch of people who are all, you know, share that same, that same excitement, that same stoke is, yeah, a, a really unique thing.
1: Way bigger than the coastal ones. Oh, so cool. There's a few good more spins, eh? More incoming. A calf. Woo.
4: I wonder if if we should just slowly... There's Go so that many way. over there, because I think we're just getting a lot of duplicates now. Yeah. We've just got the same ones around the boat.
2: The photographs they take allow them to identify the species, and for some groups, the individual animal, which then allows further study of movement and makeup of groups across surveys. For example, when we came across a pod of maybe 200 oceanic bottlenose dolphins, Joachim was keen to photograph as many of their fins as possible. Fins that are marked with nicks and notches act as unique identifiers for the dolphins. And Jochen already has an extensive catalogue of oceanic bottlenose dolphin fin pictures that he can compare with. He's really interested in the association of these dolphins with one of his favourite study species, false killer whales. In Northland... Joachim has never seen false killer whales without oceanic bottlenose dolphins, and he would like to know more about why this is. The team also collect other data. Oceanographic sampling allows them to work out what the habitat that they are finding these marine animals in is like. To do this, they use a piece of oceanographic data logging equipment called an Orbi or Concerto CTD, which, on the boat is nicknamed Roberto. Uh Aha,
1: Roberto (laughs) is our very capable little CTD And CTD is an oceanographic instrument. It stands for conductivity, temperature, and depth. It basically gives you readings of salinity and temperature and how much phytoplankton is in the water at every depth. So we drop it over the side with a rope. And so as it travels through the water while it sinks, it's collecting data. And then when we pull it back up, we download it, and we have a record of what that water column looks like in terms of temperature and its salinity and phytoplankton. And that is very useful for identifying what type of water mass it is and how productive that water might be, how much it varies with depth, which is important as well. So we're trying to characterize what's the habitat or the environment that the different species prefer. And so as we accumulate more and more sightings, we can start saying, okay, well, Sperm whales or these offshore bottlenose dolphins prefer these areas that have a certain depth or a certain topography or a certain oceanographic signature. And so it's all about trying to understand what's their habitat, what does it look like.
2: And the surveys are really paying dividend in terms of the marine megafauna species that they're finding. Like just in this year's survey, we came across common striped rizzles and oceanic bottlenose dolphins. We spotted loads of sunfish. We saw a mako, a hammerhead, and a juvenile whale shark. And the team identified sperm, brooders, and say whales, as well as the probable first New Zealand live sighting of an extremely elusive species of beaked whale.
1: Beaked whales are, at the best of times, just really hard to see. They are very shy, they're almost always an offshore pelagic environment. You wouldn't normally see them in the coast, so it's not the kind of everyday <laughs> um, cetacean. So seeing a beaked whale is already really, really exciting. They're deep divers, they spend a lot of time underwater, they come up to the surface just for a tiny bit of time. So we see them very rarely. So we were very excited just because of the fact that they were beaked whales. But when we started um, looking at the photos, we couldn't tell straight away which species of beaked whale it was. And beaked whales are relatively hard to identify unless you're very familiar with them, just because we know so little about them. But when we started going through the guide, it was hard to know which ones they were. And we started to realize that it was probably quite a rare species of beaked whale. We didn't really know exactly at the time which one it was. We were speculating over the maybe the two most likely ones based on the identification guides, and we were really pumped because it looked like it was one of the very rare ones. And then we sent the photos to the experts, and it turns out that it looks like they are ginkgo-toothed beaked whales, which is amazing because they have never been seen alive at sea in New Zealand, basically.
2: For me... One of the most interesting aspects of the survey were the acoustic recordings that the team were taking. Every five nautical miles of transect, we stopped, turned off the engine, and threw a hydrophone over the side to record the underwater sound. Because the world of cetaceans, of whales and dolphins, is an acoustic world, where we rely on sight as our main sense. In the dark depths of the ocean, these marine mammals rely on sound. So on survey, these acoustic recordings are a big advantage. They can let you know that something is in the area, and they can also help with identifying what it might be.
1: There are certain species that are very, very characteristic. For example, false killer whales make very particular sounds. Pilot whales are as well, they're very, very chatty, and they make these particular sounds. Um, sperm whales are a very obvious one that are unmistakable. So there's some species that you can tell apart, and, and then others you can group them. So it's you, know, you might be able to say, oh, this is definitely a beaked whale, but you might not be able to tell which beaked whale exactly or which dolphin exactly.
2: One species that makes very distinct sounds is Martha's main study species, sperm whales.
1: So a few records that they hold. They are, well, don't get me started, they are really awesome and bizarre. But anyway, they hold the biggest nose on record in the animal kingdom, <laughs> which is thanks to their big melon that they use for echolocation. They also produce the loudest underwater sounds. They have the largest brain, which is not necessarily the smartest animal. Um, And they're one of the deepest uh, diving cetaceans.
2: While all of these titles and awards are noteworthy, it's this fact that they're in this group of deepest diving animals that captures my imagination. Because sperm whales regularly dive down hundreds of metres, sometimes more than a thousand metres, to hunt for prey. And it's just such a different world down there. It's cold, it's highly pressurised, and it's completely dark, which is why they use echolocation to hunt. So they
1: make these clicks to get an echo from what's around them. And so they're constantly making these click sounds, and they interpret the echoes so that if there's a fish in the way of their click, that will return a particular echo. And so... Every time that we hear these echolocation clicks that are quite regular, kind of like, we know that they're foraging because that's what it sounds like. It's called usual clicks. And then sometimes we hear these buzzes, which are very, very, very fast sequences of clicks. And that's when they're really close to their prey and they're trying to get, you know, closer and closer updated position of their prey. And so that tells us that they're attempting to capture prey.
2: On last year's survey, the Far Out team recorded this clip.
1: That's from a very large pod of sperm whales. And very large for sperm whales, it was about 40, 50 animals, which is incredible. It's not a lot if it was a dolphin group, but for sperm whales, that's a lot. And they were all clicking and foraging. It sounds like a castanet party. (laughs) And it was super exciting to see so many sperm whales in the same area. That's something that we don't see every day. Certainly not at Kakoda, where you usually see, um, you know, if you're lucky, two whales together, it's usually that they're scattered around. So seeing a big social group of sperm whales like that was pretty amazing. Yeah.
2: So, and you have taken some pictures to ID these sperm whales. Mm-hmm. And so far, they appear to be a completely different set to those in Kaikoura. Isn't that correct? Yes. Yeah. So most of the animals that we were
1: seeing uh, up north in this big group um were smaller than what we often see at, at Kaikota. So that's likely to be a mix of uh, mature and immature females and some immature males. There were some juveniles. But there were a few large males, which would be similar in size to the ones that we see at Kaikota. And those are the ones that we were trying to match. And so far, it doesn't seem like there's any matches with Kaikōda. And certainly the females and the younger individuals, we, we don't see at Kaikōda because we... There's hardly ever females seen at Kaikoura, So it's definitely a new set <laughs> of individuals and really exciting, actually, because we know next to nothing about the female sperm whales in New Zealand. And so it's really exciting to see that there's this area where we can more or less reliably find mixed groups of sperm whales, including females and juveniles. And it creates a really exciting opportunity to, to study the females and find out more about the breeding part of the
2: population. I mean, 50 sperm whales is a lot of whales. Did you know that they were going to be there? We had no idea. We were really hoping
1: to find sperm whales. From the whaling records around New Zealand from last century, we knew that this was an area where a lot of whales had been hunted, particularly very high numbers of females. Um, So we were hoping that we'd see some females, but we didn't really know what to expect. And so finding them and in those sort of numbers was just incredible. It was so, so exciting, yeah.
2: On this year's survey, the team again came across sperm whales. When we stopped to do an acoustic recording at the end of our first transect, Martha heard the regular foraging sperm whale clicks and used a directional hydrophone to figure out where they were. The slight wind that had been blowing all day dropped off completely and the sea turned to glass. And all of a sudden we started to see regular blows, the sign of a sperm whale that's come to the surface to catch its breath. So the dinghy was launched to enable the team to get closer, in position behind the whale to get the important ID shot as they dive and flick their tail fluke vertically. And so this became our afternoon. Looking for blows, traveling across the calm ocean, close to the whales, to take pictures and to try and pick up any skin that fell off them as they dived because it can be used later for genetic analysis. There was no land in sight Just our boat, and the whales. And as the sun got lower, the whales stopped foraging and they grouped up together. Thirteen of them, all in a line. And they didn't mind as our boat drifted amongst them, with sperm whales either side, just breathing gently. And just as they started grouping together, the team took an acoustic recording and they captured something other than foraging clicks.
1: Yeah, so that that's really exciting. It's what we call a coda. It's a sequence of clicks that sperm whales use um, as a social signature, basically kind of like a signal that defines each clan or each family group. So each family group has a specific coda. Some of them might be click, 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 click. Others might be click, 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 <laughs> So they're different sequences. And it's really exciting to hear them because this lets us investigate um, this kind of social aspect of these groups. Are there different clans mixed in? Is it just mostly one clan in there? Um, do, are these uh, clans similar to other ones in the Pacific that we know they're codas? Um, so it's a really exciting avenue for research to investigate these codas further. And it's just really cool to hear them. They're basically interacting socially to know who is who in their group.
2: Is coda a language? Or is it just like a statement of identity? That's an excellent question.
1: And we still don't fully know all the information that's portrayed in CODA. So it's definitely a statement of clan identity. But there's also evidence that there is more information encrypted in CODAs. And we still don't fully understand how that information is encrypted. But sperm whales sometimes do their CODAs differently depending on what part of their dive they're in, for example, or what stage of the dive. And so we think that there's a, there, there could be language encrypted in those quotas. And, and even the statement of identity, that's a form of language. They're still communicating who they are, basically, to their own clan and to other clans. Yeah, it's really cool that over the last kind of decade or so, I suppose, there's been a lot more research into this, um, into the sperm whale language and the culture behind it. So a lot more information on how those codas are used and how they evolve um, and how they are, are a reflection on on the fact that these animals have culture and have these really complex societies, and they teach their you know, younger generations, and so that 's really really exciting and we 're really stoked that we can contribute to this now as well by having you know, having the, the New Zealand portion of sperm whales uh, having their codas and being able to fit that f- piece of the puzzle into the bigger picture it's super exciting.
2: I just find it cool to think that this is Northland sperm whale culture. And how good is it to be living in a time where we can study these amazing creatures and understand their lives, rather than hunt them. The Far Out team are excited about what they've already been able to discover. New groups of sperm whales and recordings of their language live sightings of really rare whales, and figuring out this dynamic of the Northland Falls killer whales and oceanic bottlenose dolphin groups that hang out together. And these are just some of the contributions in an offshore area that seems to be full of surprises. So what's next? Well, the team plan to return next summer and they hope in winter too. Because that's what's needed. More surveys, collecting more data, finding more of what is out there. Captain Jochen probably summarizes it best.
4: Every time we go up there, we see stuff that we haven't seen before, and it's just such an you know, important area. You know, that work just really needs to be done, and the more we can do, the better.
0: Good
4: evening, how was your day today, John, over? Good evening, that. We had a wonderful day up on the Cavalli um, Seamount and we are just making our way back to the Bay of Islands. So thank you very much for your watch and hopefully we'll see you again later next week, over. Okay, thank you for that. Will
2: you guys have a lovely trip back to the Bay of Islands and I look forward to talking to you soon. See
0: yeah. Thanks, Claire. In Search of What is Out There was created by Claire Concannon. Thanks to all the members of the Far Out Ocean Research Collective: Marta Gera, Tom Bruff, Jochen Zaxmar, Sarah Dwyer, and Lily Cosmian Ledward. Original music and sound design was by Grains, the Wellington-based synthesizer duo of Perry Hyde and Callum Turner. Find them on Instagram at Grains underscore And Claire says. Please share the story far and wide. I'm Alison Balance, and this Hour Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 11th of March 2021. You can find photos and links at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash hourchangingworld. The subscription link for our free email newsletter is at the bottom of the page, along with a number of curated collections of our stories. Birds, Antarctica, the various Voices of series that I've made, they're all there. We are SRNZ Science wherever you listen to podcasts, and there are plenty more podcasts at the podcast tab at rnz.co.nz, including a new series of Healthy or Hoax. We are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Namihi. Botox Cosmetic,
2: botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.